0: We're going to take a little break from our series in the church. We've been hitting it pretty hard for the last uh, month, month and a half, and we'll pick that up in the new year, but I thought it'd be good just to pause for a couple of Sundays here and uh, help prepare our hearts for worship this Christmas season. And I'm very excited to let you know you're going to get to hear from a number of our leaders here throughout the month, um, three of them besides myself. That's a great blessing just to have that here, and um, I'm excited through, as the month goes on for us to be blessed in that way. My family and I will be traveling um, for the Christmas holiday, and I'm just so thankful always to have um, those who are, are part of this ministry who um, have such a heart to share as well and can be used in that way. So thank you in anticipation of that. Thank you to them. The title of this message today is The Son of David. I trust many of you know this, that Jesus is the center of human history. And I don't mean that perfectly symmetrically, as in numbers of years, that it's a mirror image on either side of the cross or the birth. But rather, in a and you pull back and you look at it from more of a broad bird's-eye view, Jesus is the center of human history. And more specifically, what we mean by that is the defining element of human history before the time of Christ was the anticipation of his coming. And the defining element now on the other side of his coming to this earth is the fact that he came. And so the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, they're all at the center of human history. Everything before that was anticipation of his coming, and everything after it is the fact that he came. Now, of course, much of the ancient world didn't care about his coming. They didn't necessarily know even about all the prophecies concerning him, and there were hundreds that he fulfilled. Nor would they likely have cared about those prophecies even if they had known. What we see very clearly in the Old Testament narrative is that they lived as gods unto themselves. In great arrogance, they cared about building their own kingdoms on the earth. And in their own proud eyes, their own kingdoms were the zenith of glory. So they would probably have disagreed with our first statement this morning that the defining element of human history, B.C., was the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. But I trust you also know that ignorance of the truth doesn't change the truth. It's very important to realize. Ignorance of the truth does not change the truth. In reality, for all those wicked nations, their kingdoms were, in fact, very petty. They were fleeting. They were corrupt. Their lives were quickly passing, just like when you take a, a dandelion that's, that's mostly run its course, and in a strong summer breeze, you, and what happens? It just it scatters. That's what a human life is like on this earth. So for all those kings who were so magnificent in their own eyes... Their mark on history would be neither a good one nor a lasting one. And it calls to mind verses like these, Psalm 103, verse 15, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Now that's super depressing if you're living for yourself and your own glory and your own legacy. It's not depressing at all if you have a grasp on eternal things. It's even more direct, I think. In Isaiah 40, verse 23, we read that what God does is this. He, God, brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Now, God's people... In the time of the Old Testament prophets, which at this point, God's people had been divided into two main people groups, northern Israel and southern Judah, what we see is that they themselves were not exactly holy, were they? God sovereignly chose to use them for a holy purpose, but except for a very few exceptions, God's people were as wicked as the nations that surrounded them. And in fact, you could even make the argument that the sins of Israel were greater even than those of the pagan nations surrounding her, for Israel had been shown God's wonders. They knew better, in a sense. Israel had been given God's word, had been given God's law, and still they became like the wicked pagan nations around them. So for this morning, I have some lengthier passages of Scripture that we're going to read through together. And so I, I don't mention this every week. I need to. I, I forget. But I encourage you to bring your Bible if you have one. If you need one, we would love to get you one. But if you have a Bible with you or if you want to grab one from under the seat in front of you, we're going to spend some time in Ezekiel today. And so turn to Ezekiel 20. If you, if you are using those Bibles in the chairs, the one that's mostly blue with like some wheat grass, it's on page 589. And if you're using the ones that are half, and, half blue and half white, it's on $399. If you're not overly familiar with the order of the Old Testament books, those ones under the chairs, again, the mostly blue one is $589, the blue and white one is $399. But while you're turning there, um, just keep your finger there because we will look at a number of passages in Ezekiel. Remember in the Old Testament, God would speak through his prophets. There were just these handful of men who were holy and devoted unto God. And and occasionally some women he raised up as well, to be his voice to his people, to indict them, to promise them blessing for their obedience, but judgment for their disobedience. And God's people had become so wicked so often, it was very rare that there would be these prophets raised up to speak his words. So in Ezekiel 20, verse 1, here's what we read. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day, I like always just to pause at moments like that and say, it's okay to push back on this skeptical world when they say, oh, the Bible's just a bunch of fairy tales. It's, it's basically far, in a land far, far away, long time ago. No, the, the Bible is incredibly precise historically, and we have all the reason in the world to have confidence in the faithful transmission of the text through the centuries. The historical accuracy is, is incredible. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day, some of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord. And they sat down in front of me. Who is me? It's the prophet Ezekiel, who actually, at this point, was speaking for God. And this was very presumptuous of them, because at this point in the narrative, the the elders were incredibly wicked. And so for them to just assume that they could go and inquire of the Lord was an incredibly bold and foolish move, even in and of itself, because their hearts weren't right in approaching him. And so God does, in fact, speak to Ezekiel. And he says, then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Have you come to inquire of me? As surely as I live, I will not let you inquire of me, declares the Sovereign Lord. And then he says to Ezekiel, Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Then confront them with the detestable practices of their ancestors and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. Think of the wonders that God did in delivering his people from Egypt. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And these were choice products in this day and age. This was a sign of absolute blessing and and wealth and provision, the cream of the crop. It might sound a bit strange, to people in our own generation even though we still enjoy milk and honey just that particular combination i i had a friend in middle school and he was riding in the vehicle with our family one day and he was not necessarily a kid that went to church or read his bible and there was a song playing that actually referenced the land of milk and honey and he was actually listening and he piped up and he said why not milk and cookies you know so maybe that's a better modern kind of expression that would result in like great blessing and happiness i don't know milk and honey is still pretty it's pretty great It's just interesting how Bible things sometimes sound to the the non-Bible reading mind. The most beautiful of all lands. And I said to them, each of you, get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they lived and in whose sight I had revealed myself to the Israelites. Therefore, I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws, by which the person who obeys them will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us, so they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. So you see God going to every length to do for his people what needs done, and they're continued diving deeper into their perversion and their idolatry and their deviancy and their wickedness. Here they have the living God before them, revealing himself to them, and and they turn away from him and instead worship pathetic idols of wood or stone. And and look at those objects and say, you are God, we worship you. They would even, as you'll see in this next passage, they would go to lengths that are nearly incomprehensible, I hope, to to those of us now living on the other side of the gospel. So look now, skip down to verse 30, if you would. We don't have time to read the entirety of these chapters, but I want to focus on some, some bigger sections still. Ezekiel 20, verse 30, therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In case you wondered if God was being too harsh on them, will you defile yourselves the way your ancestors did and lust after their vile images? Now, often people, when they would approach God or the gods, they would bring gifts, right? Listen to what kind of gifts they're bringing. When you offer your gifts, the sacrifice of your children in the fire, you continue to defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. Am I to let you inquire of me, you Israelites? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will not let you inquire of me. You say, we want to be like the nations. There there it is. It's so clear. God just lays it out. That's what their heart desire is. We want to be like the nations, like the peoples of the world who serve wood and stone. But what you have in mind will never happen. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will reign over you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. And then listen to this. I will bring you into the wilderness of the nations and there, face to face, I will execute judgment upon you. That's not a conversation you want to have with the living God, is it? How serious God was about his holiness. There, face to face, I will execute judgment upon you. The reason I'm I'm taking us through all these descriptions this morning of what things were like at this point is to just paint a picture for you that the Bible paints. And that is what an awful state of things. The one glimmer of hope or light that the ancient world maybe had was Israel or Judah, like the one fledgling nation God had pulled aside to display his character and his holiness is doing everything he commands them not to and looking just like the world lost in darkness around them. And so it's like the one hope the world has is is not being the hope they're called to be. Their hearts were not good. And so there was chaos. I mean, that's life in this ancient world. That's what it was like. It's chaos. It's darkness. It's desolation. Everything was gray, There's no color. There's no life. It's all hopeless. All there was was great need for deliverance, for salvation, for some kind of true light to dawn among them. And so throughout the Old Testament, God's chosen people, we see, were given his word, given his commands, and they were called upon to obey. But time and time and time again, they proved through their lives that their hearts did not belong to him. Their hearts did not love him. Their hearts were not good. They loved their images. They loved their idols. In short, they loved their sin. They loved their sin. We have to pause, don't we? Can we ask, do you love your sin today? Do I? Is it not why we fall into it? Are we deceiving ourselves? Why do we fall into it? How great is our love for our Savior really if our love for the world and for our own selfish desires continues to shove him aside off the the throne of our greatest desires and affections. We live on the other side of the gospel, but don't we know at least a little bit of what it's like to be in the darkness and the wilderness and the desolation of the heart? Many today find themselves in just as hopeless of a plight as ancient Israel. Later in Ezekiel, God moves from the people and he specifically targets the leaders. He indicts the leaders of Israel who are likened unto shepherds. God's people are as sheep, sheep to be shepherded, sheep that are to be led and fed and protected and cared for. And Israel's leaders were to be her shepherds, but Israel's leaders failed her. The sheep were as good as shepherdless was the result. Because the shepherds had taken the job, it turns out, for the title and for the wealth, and for the power. They were proud and greedy and selfish. They wanted power, they wanted riches, and presiding over the sheep was a means to that end. That's how they got there. And so the shepherds grew fat, while the sheep starved, spiritually and literally. The shepherds fortified themselves while the sheep remained vulnerable and exposed. What we see again and again, things were just an absolute mess. It's just chaos. It's spiritual death and darkness everywhere. Before Christ, everything was a mess almost always. Very occasionally, a godly leader on whom God's Spirit rested would be raised up and would lead the people into this window of time where they would be blessed by Him and their hearts would be turned back to Him. But it was never enough. It was never ultimate salvation. Every once in a while, the sheep would be led into a safe pasture fresh streams of water, green grass, but for the most part in Israel's history, all was wasteland. Not spiritual green fields, it was dirt and ash. Their, load, their lands were as barren as their hearts. And what we see is the shepherds of Israel had become jackals, is the bottom line. And God raised his voice to them. And so now turn to Ezekiel 34, if you would. We'll look here for the moment at the first 10 verses as God moves from speaking to the people to speaking to the leaders, the shepherds. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against who? The shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. What an indictment on us at times in the church, how comfortable and spiritually fat we grow, and are we searching for the lost? Are our hearts desperate to see lost sheep brought into the fold? Of God's pasture? Or are we just so happy to be our happy group? You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. That's a defining phrase for Old Testament Israel. There was no ultimate shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered, and has become food for the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. Was there any hope? I mean, not only are the people wandering and lost now, but there's no promise of leadership or shepherding. What would be the ultimate answer? The whole world was in darkness. All the peoples of the earth in great distress. The nations were in turmoil. If even the fledgling little nation of God's people Israel was in shambles, what hope would there be for anyone? Because increasingly, mankind knew only hatred and murder and violence and sexual deviancy and perversion and idolatry and deception. That was life. Did this take God by surprise? Did it unnerve him? Did it leave him frantic and and figuratively speaking, like pulling out his divine hair in a panic? Did he try to rush in some new shepherds that hopefully would do a better job? Like when a corporation is absolutely failing in in demographics and in, in quarterly results and they just try to rush and make big changes in leadership? Would God be desperate to try the next person or the next, hoping beyond all hope that maybe just one of them would be a worthy shepherd who could gather the sheep and lead them safely to pasture? Is this the kind of God who is? Is this the kind of God of whom Scripture speaks? No, it is not. Remember our first point, the defining element of human history before the time of Christ was what? The anticipation of his coming. If you've read your Old Testament, which can be a formidable challenge, I acknowledge, but I encourage you to do it. What you'll see is that from Genesis to Malachi, the very beginning to the very ending of the Old Testament, here is what you will find, is that there was a promise continually spoken. Sometimes whispered, sometimes shouted from the the mountaintops that one day, one day, there would come a deliverer, one like a son of man, son of David, a king to end all kings, a Savior who could and would save completely. And this began, this promise began from virtually the first moment of humanity's sin, which is very close to the the beginning of humanity's history. Their plunge into spiritual darkness and death was followed immediately with God's promise made to the serpent. And what did he say? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, saying this to the enemy of our souls, to the great serpent. Between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. That's total defeat. And you will strike his heel. That's a wound, but not a perilous one. And incredibly, it would not be out of the clouds that the Savior would appear in all the splendor and glory of heaven itself. It would not be that way. It would be through broken humanity. Specifically through a woman, more specifically through the womb of a woman, that salvation would come, a savior would appear. In absolute humility, absolute self- selflessness, <laughs> gotta be careful to say that one right. Absolute love and devotion, a savior would one day come. And so go back then to the barren wasteland that is the Old Testament world. There's this promise people yearn, people long, they're in darkness. They're empty, they're dead. They don't even really know what they're yearning for because they want political deliverance. They think they're the good guys and in in our hearts, we're all the bad guys. Everything's a wasteland and we have corrupt shepherds on top of that, leaders. What did we just ask just, just a moment ago? Did God frantically promote candidate after candidate, desperately hoping someone would lead his people? No, this is what our God purposed to do. This is what he declared. We pick it up now in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. These are some of the the most resounding words of Scripture. Take this in, breathe it in deep. God says, I myself. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations. And gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice." And skip down now, if you would, to verse 20. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you've driven them away, I will save my flock. And they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, one shepherd. And then look at this very interesting phrase that can be confusing if we're not careful with our interpretation. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. And here it is again, my servant David, Will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them and that they, the Israelites, are my people." declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. As magnificent as that proclamation was, it did not materialize then. It was spoken as though into the air to hover over the people, but to deliver no rain on them. They heard these words, but nothing, still nothing happened. They waited, the world waited As I mentioned, there's one part of this passage that can be a bit confusing if we're not careful in how we interpret it. Verses 23 and 24 make it sound as though the literal human king David was going to be the ultimate savior of God's people, the ultimate Messiah. Look again at verse 24 there, Ezekiel 34, 24. This one is on the screen for you. I, the Lord, will be their God. And what does it say? My servant David will be prince among them. And just before that, it had said, They will be ruled by one shepherd, my servant David. Now, here's what you need to know. David and David's throne became symbols in the Old Testament for the coming one who would be the ultimate savior. As magnificent of a king as David was, his momentary season of moral collapse notwithstanding, as magnificent of a ruler as he was, the man after God's own heart, He was not the ultimate savior. He was a sinner, same as all the rest. And yet, David is easily the greatest of any human king, any Old Testament king. And thus, he became a type, a shadow, a symbol of the ultimate savior who was to come. His name became synonymous with the one who would be as a son of man, who would be the son of David, who would be the the Messiah, the saving one. We see the very beginnings of this earlier in the Old Testament narrative. When David is alive and the prophet Nathan speaks to him and makes this promise from God in 2 Samuel 7:16, here's what God declares to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established what's the word? forever. That was obviously not literal. Nothing on this earth has lasted or will last forever in terms of broken sinful humans and their kingdoms and their thrones this became a messiah promise an eternal kingdom promise and david's response to this was in second samuel 7:25 and now lord god keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house do as you promised so that your name will be great forever then people will say the lord almighty is god over israel and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Now, interestingly, if you read the whole chapter there of 2 Samuel 7, you come across some more problematic texts because there's some other verses in some other language that makes it sound as though maybe Solomon, David's son, is going to be the ultimate Messiah king, the ultimate deliverer, because he will be the one to spearhead the building of the temple. And what does the temple represent? The place where God's presence is, where his spirit dwells, and where his people can encounter him and dwell with him. But Solomon was no ultimate savior, not by a a long stretch. Rather, the ultimate son of David who would raise up a temple in which his people would dwell with God forever was not Solomon. It would be, of course, God's own son who the temple would be destroyed and on the third day rebuilt and God's people would be able to dwell with him in his presence forever. He would make his home among them. He would tabernacle with them. This would be through the line of David, Jesus the Messiah. And I hope now as we get to this pivotal moment that this settles in on you with profound importance if it hasn't ever before. Why the Christmas narrative, the nativity story, the first line of the New Testament. If you've ever opened your Bible to the New Testament and read the first words, if you ever thought genealogies were boring and without purpose, think again, because the entire New Testament starts with these holy words, Matthew one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. What does it say? The son of David. Why doesn't he start with Adam? Why doesn't he start with Abraham? Why doesn't he start with Jacob or Judah? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. He's the son of David. David's throne was the symbol of the everlasting reign of God over the hearts of his people who would be saved by this perfect shepherd gathered from every corner of the world. The promise would be that the seed of the woman who would overthrow the great serpent and all of sin and hell and death with the serpent would be one who would come as a son in David's line to fulfill the promise of reigning from a forever throne in a spiritual Israel, a company that would include far more than just national Jews, but people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Jesus is the ultimate version of what David represented. In Jesus, one greater than Moses has arrived. In Jesus, one greater than the angels, greater than David, has arrived. One greater even than Solomon in all of his splendor has arrived. Solomon was not the ultimate son of the king who would be the savior, Now, am I just conveniently interpreting all these difficult verses because that's what ministers of the word do to try to make it all work and fit, even though there's lots of problems in the text? We just interpret it however we want? No, how does the Bible interpret this for us? Look at Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign, what, on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And so you can see very clearly, can't you, terms such as Son of David or Throne of David or Everlasting Reign of David became household symbols of the coming one, the much-longed-for one. Those were some of his titles the Savior who would reign over his people forever with justice and mercy. When the messianic king arrived, this was so important, and the Old Testament people of God could not understand this or live it. When this Messiah arrived, more than just external obedience of his people would belong to him. More than just their visible prostration, their literal bowing down, more than that would belong to him, what would belong to him? their hearts would belong to him. The defining element of human history before the time of Christ was what? The anticipation of his coming. People longed, they waited, they hoped, they inquired, they puzzled, they suffered. I mentioned this in the newsletter this month, there were those who longed to know what the name would be and what the face would be of the one who would come. They longed to discover the secrets, the mysteries even angels long to look into these things, we read. But they were all, not the angels, the people were all in darkness and their hearts in bondage. They're often their bodies in bondage. And which is why when Jesus arrived, it's so significant that everywhere he began to travel, what does it say he did specifically? He eradicated disease. And those who are oppressed in any way, demonic, demonically or otherwise, even those who wouldn't love him or believe in him or worship him, he healed, it says, all the disease. He eradicated it. It caused a holy frenzy among people in New Testament times. And so look at these profound words. Then Matthew 12, 23, all the people were astonished and said, what? Could this be the son of David? So as we've spent time in the prophet Ezekiel and other passages this morning, I hope you can better appreciate the significance of the phrase, in Ezekiel 34, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. Is it talking about the literal human David? No, I hope you can see from all these verses, and there's a dozen more we could mention. It was the Messiah who would be the ultimate version of what David was to be. I want to finish today by looking once again at a portion of Ezekiel 34. And as we read it, what I want to do is to show you what was prophesied through Ezekiel, and then I want you to see what Jesus himself said when he was on this earth. Look at Ezekiel 34, 27. You can skip past that one, thanks. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke. Now, for any young kids or for any who just didn't realize this, it's not the egg yoke. It's the yoke that would be on the back of a beast of burden, an ox or... Another animal, very heavy weight, by which they would begrudgingly perhaps carry out their burdensome duty. I will break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. What did Jesus say when he was here? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does it say in the next verse of Ezekiel? Ezekiel 34, 28. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. Jesus said in John 6, 20, It is I, do not be afraid. In the next verse in Ezekiel, verse 29, I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of nations. Jesus said, Jesus said, to his people, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. God is promising, I'll provide a place for you that will be eternally nourishing and life-giving. And Jesus says those very things, this is what I've come for. I am preparing such a place and I will Take you to be with me there. In the next verse in Ezekiel, verse 30, they then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. Think of those words and the significance. I, the Lord God, will be with them. And they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In Ezekiel 34, verse 31, here was another statement. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture. I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. And Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. See, it wouldn't just be national Jews any longer who were welcomed into God's family and his kingdom. It would be for the whole world. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. What desperate longing and yearning fills the hearts of those lost and blind and dead who God has created to live with him in the light. Not all will live forever with him in the light, but he is calling and he is seeking those who are his sheep and they will hear his voice. And they are restless and they're despondent and they're afraid until they hear their shepherd's voice. And so why did this Messiah need to come? Matthew makes it clear, Matthew 4, 14 and 16. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah to people living in darkness. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so this is a good time, isn't it? Just to pause and all this... Discussion of Old Testament history, let this, let this speak to us today. Where I have to ask, is there a darkness in my heart? You have to ask, is there a darkness in your heart? And do you long for the light? Have you sensed this great empty void of the soul that you know, deep inside you know, can only ever be filled by the coming of one like the Son of Man, the Son of David, a saving one, a Messiah who can reign forever in you, over you, through you? Or is your soul in the awful state this morning of being more than happy to just continue pretending to be God unto yourself and building your own petty little kingdom on this earth, a pretend kingdom that will wash away literally in an instant like a child's sandcastle when the wave washes over it? Are you like ancient Israel? Do you feel at home in the darkness? Do you have hope only for this life? What an important question to ask. Do I have hope only for this life? What what would that look like? Are you clinging to every earthly passion and memory that you can? As though this desperate attempt to just create more moments in my life convinces me that that's a worthy enough cause to live life on this earth. I'll have given all my effort and my passion. I'll I'll have created moments that were good that I can leave as a memory. Are you wanting to leave a legacy someday that, that just exists to convince everybody that you were a pretty good person, that you weren't bad? Or are you living for a future hope and glory? Is your heart awakening to that which will never spoil or perish or fade? Or is your treasure here on this earth? And in in New Testament times, in Jesus' words, that was often very material. It wasn't always. Is your hope and your treasure on the earth? Is it in accounts? Is it in stocks? Is it in bonds? Is it in investments? Do these things occupy the better part of your time and your emotion and your hope and your security? May we pray that mercifully we grow to desire more than everything I've just described. And treasure doesn't have to be monetary, although it often is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't store up, therefore, treasure for yourself on earth. Don't do it. It could be worldly wealth, it could be the treasure of a particular social standing, it could be the treasure of a picturesque family. I've got to have that picturesque family, or all is not could be any number of things. May God show us if there is darkness in us, just as there's darkness surely all around us. May he show us if it is in us. May we long for the light to appear and dispel every shadowy wraith that would antagonize our souls. So if your sins hang over you like a granite boulder, if all your shame robs you of true, genuine peace, if all your guilt antagonizes your sleep, Why not cry out, as in days of old, come, come, Emmanuel, come and save. Perhaps the most striking verse in Ezekiel is in 34 is verse 30. Look at this again. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, what does it say, am with them. I, the Lord their God, am with them. Matthew 1, and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What, is, what does that mean? That when he comes, God is with us. It means that before Christ, God was not with us. We were his enemies. Now, a very few he was with, his spirit was on for a purpose, but God was not with us. He was not yet with his people. But now, through him, through Christ, the coming of a precious infant in a manger. And uh, Kristen, go ahead and come on up. Thank you. God is now with us. And so as the song say, receive him as king. Let your heart make room for him. Cry out, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel. Be with me, that I could be with you. Save me. Kristen is, uh, she's unfortunately not going to be here. Her and Russell next week for our Christmas program, and I mean, she's like one of our MVPs, so I imposed on her to play this song for us in closing and just to listen and, and let your heart cry out with this beautiful melody of a plea for God to come and be with us, to be with me, that I could be with you. I hope this uh, is worshipful for you.